uh, in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as we read our text for this morning? Proverbs chapter 16, and we will begin and end in verse 3. It says this. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Amen. Right on. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the ability both to take large chunks of scripture and study it, but also just to look at what you say in one little proverb and the profound impact that it can have on our lives. We pray, God, now that as we turn our attention further to you, we've sung your praise, we've prayed to you already, God, we've, we've uh, celebrated who you are and what you're doing in our midst. God, now as we worship you through the study of your word, we pray that you would speak and that our ears and our hearts, our eyes would be attuned to you, that we would be able to look past a human speaker and the notes on the podium, the, the stuff that's been planned, that we'd be able to look past that and hear your voice, see your face, that our hearts would be transformed and that you would be glorified in us, we pray. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, you guys can have a seat. You'll note that on the Sundays when I'm not the one reading the text, I make them read all of Proverbs 31, and on the Sundays when I'm going to read, I'm like, well, let's just do like half a sentence. That'd be fine. Um, we're in the middle of a series called Proverbial Life, the Proverbial Life, and we're looking at the, the book of Proverbs, but even broader than that, we're looking at the wisdom that's taught in the Bible about the way in which we live. So many times, uh, faith sort of becomes an intellectual pursuit for some reason, and it becomes about what you know, and being able to answer the questions right, and being able to win at Bible trivia or whatever, and yet the Bible is so much about action. And it's so much about living in light of what you know. And there's no better place than Proverbs for us to sort of think about what is this life meant to look like. And so each week we've taken a different sort of proverbial aspect of the essential life, the proverbial life. Last week we talked about proverbial family. This morning we're talking about proverbial work. What does the Bible say about work? And Proverbs has tons, more than we even have time to read this morning, that the, that the book of Proverbs says about work. But I landed here in 16.3 because it kind of encapsulates what I, what I think God wants to say to us this morning. Commit your work to the Lord and he will establish your plans. And when we start to talk about work, I would guess that there are a couple of responses in the room. There might be some of you who are like, oh, I work all week, man. I don't want to come here on Sunday and talk about work. But listen, it's important for us to talk about work because we spend the great majority, if not, as we'll see in the text this morning, if not all of our time working in some way. We have to pay attention to it. We can't allow the weekend to be a time where we stop thinking about what's being produced in our lives. There may also be some of you, when we think about work, maybe you're retired or maybe you're out of work and you go, ah, this isn't really for me. Uh, you know, I'm retired, so I'm just kind of sitting around. I worked really hard for a long time so that I could just not do anything anymore or whatever. Or some of you may have been in pursuit of a job for a while and you might go, man, this is really hard for me because I'm unemployed at the moment. Let me say that what the Bible has to say about work is much broader than just your specific employment at a specific time or the job that you used to do, or the job you're hoping to do in the future, that when we talk about work in the Bible, essentially what it's talking about is any and all productive action. Any and all productive action in your life. So that includes uh, not just what you do to make a paycheck, or what you hope to do to make a paycheck, but includes every activity that produces something in your life. By that definition, you and I are actively working, we're actively producing all day long. 
We're doing that every day, not just on the weekdays, not just on the weekends. We are constantly working in some form or fashion, and the Bible has a lot to say about what we do with our productive action, about the way in which we focus that or the way in which we commit it. And it's important to understand that when we talk about work, work isn't something that's a, uh, it's not part of the curse. I can remember people sort of saying like, oh, the only reason why we have to work and the only reason why we have to have these jobs is because of the fall of man. That isn't true. We see that work is an essential and integral part of the character of God. So let's start there, right? That God himself is a worker. And you might sort of take a second to soak that up. You might go, well, what do you mean? Well, creation shows the work of God. And then you might say, well, yeah, but he just spoke a word and then it happened. That's not really, it's not like what I do. I'm a bus driver, I'm a school teacher, I'm a plumber. He's not, you know, I mean, what he does isn't the same kind of work. Well, Genesis chapter two says quite clearly in the first three verses Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work. God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. It's not just physical labor. It's any productive action. Our God, from the very beginning of our story, is a worker. And he continues to work to this day. Even though the initial creation is finished, we see in passages like, like Colossians that all things continue to be sustained through him. Not only was he the creative force, the Lord Jesus, the creative force in creation, but he upholds all things and sustains them through his continued productive action, right? Right? Our God is a worker, and so it's important to understand that then when he creates us in his image, man and woman, in the image of God, that work is a part of the way we reflect his image. It is no wonder that very early in our story, Genesis 2, uh, when God creates man, it says in verse 15, uh, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This wasn't a punishment, right? It wasn't a byproduct of the fall or the outcome of the curse. Work existed in the harmony and beauty that God created Eden to be. In the fellowship of God and man, work was a part of that. Work was a part of being created in the image of God. Now we will see later in Genesis chapter three uh, that as a result of the fall, painful toil and suffering comes in. Labor, that's what we're talking about. When we talk about labor, we're talking about painful toil and suffering. That is a byproduct of the curse, What we understand from that is that the work or the productive action that happened prior to the fall wasn't wasn't by the sweat of the brow and through painful toiling. The, The ground had not yet been cursed, right? And so while we experience in our labor uh, some pain and some suffering and some sorrow, it's hard to be a worker, right? At the same time, we recognize that there is a day coming when the Lord Jesus will redeem all things and he'll restore all things. And when he does, the painful toil part of the curse will be resolved, but work will not go away. That might be very disappointing to some of you, right? You might be looking forward to heaven because you feel like it's just gonna be a pool party all the time, feet up on the recliner, angels bringing us, you know, Pop-Tarts and whatever. That's what I could think of as heavenly food, right? The cinnamon cinnamon ones. That's all I want, I gotta be honest with you. Uh, You might just be thinking about heaven as being this eternal lounge But that isn't true. You can look at Isaiah chapter 65. We won't turn there this morning. But Isaiah 65 that talks about eternity actually paints a picture of God's people working in eternity. That we'll be building houses and that we'll be working to glorify God even in eternity. Work is an essential part of who we are. It's an essential part of who God is. And he invites us to join him in his work. 
Proverbs chapter 18, verse 9 says this, one of many Proverbs that talk about work. Proverbs 18, 9 says, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Think about that for a second. Whoever is slack or lazy or like the sluggard, which Proverbs will talk about someplace else, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. That seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? Well, it might seem harsh until you understand that in our work, in our productive activity, we're invited to be a creative force in the image of God, to create, to produce, to bring to life things in whatever scope or sphere you currently are working in, you're invited to be a creative force in that, in the image of God. And so to be slack or to be lazy or to be a sluggard is to be a brother with the destroyer. Instead of creating, you're destroying. It's the opposite of why work exists. God calls us to participate with him. God calls us to participate. And even, you know, God models rest. So you might go, well, God seems to me like God is more focused on rest. You know, the Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, he declares that we should have a Sabbath and rest. Yeah, but even understanding the rest of God, which he models in Genesis 2 and then commands for us in Exodus 20, even his rest implies Actually, it doesn't even imply it. It point blank states it. The six other days you will work, but on the seventh you will set aside the Sabbath and keep it holy as unto me, right? So you're gonna look at Exodus 20 and the very call for us to, ha- to take a Sabbath rest is because there is an expectation of God that we would be working the rest of the time. You and I are called to work. And so we're called to work to understand who God is and to work the way he works, to work like him. It is no wonder that Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter five fourteen, he says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I think many of us, when we read a verse like that, we think of good works as being like Bible memorization, right? Or maybe teaching in a Sunday school class. We think of it in sort of strictly like churchy, religious activity, stuff that happens in here. Oh, that God wants to see my good works. How many Bible verses I've memorized, how much money I put in the offering plate, how loud I sing when the songs come on, that that people will see my good works and they'll glorify my Father. Listen, it's, it's not talking about your strictly like religious stuff, although even the word religious can get a little funny. It's not talking about what we would classically term as Christian activity. It's talking about everything you do. That's why 1 Corinthians 10 will say, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. We have the opportunity to replicate Christ. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says this. It says, we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship, his artwork, right, on display. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The picture there is that God has already ordained your life, that he has prescribed your pathway to walk in good work. And I would say to you this morning that it doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a dentist or you're a waiter or a chef, whatever you do, you can be accountant, you can be an architect, whatever it is that God has gifted you for and called you into, that each and every one of those capacities where you're doing productive action has redemptive potential. As we imitate Christ, that we can produce good work, and by that I mean work that glorifies God, that others then would see us 
and glorify him, Jesus says. So let me ask you, what did you do this week? Some of you maybe were on vacation. You know, you still worked on vacation. You maybe didn't get paid for it, but you still work. We're working all the time, productive action. Our attitudes and our deeds, our actions are constantly producing, and every moment holds redemptive potential. You've heard me say that before. We have to be thinking, what, what did God place me on the planet to do? He placed me here to know him and to honor him, to worship him. I'm his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. I have to learn how he works in order to know how I should work, right? I have to learn how he works in order to know how I should work. But what we see is that in our work, there's basically three things that can happen, three broad things I want you to get. The first one and the most important, kind of the overarching, is that God can be glorified in whatever you do. Whatever your vocation, whether you're employed or unemployed, whether you're retired or whether you're just out of college or maybe you're still in college, that whatever work you're doing, God can be glorified and it holds potential. I already read you uh, 1 Corinthians 10 31 that says whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. And so we have to be thinking determinedly about how does what I'm doing, how does the paperwork I'm filling out, how does the sandwich that I'm preparing, how does the bus that I'm driving hold the potential for God to be glorified? We'll talk about that a little bit in a second. But not only do we have the opportunity to glorify God by working the way he works, working in a provisional way, working in a caring way, working in a compassionate way, working in a creative way, these are all things that are indicative of the character of God, But not only do we have the opportunity to glorify him personally, we also have the opportunity in our different spheres to paint a picture of what God is like, right? So in my work, people can see me. That's what Jesus was saying. People will see me, and they'll they'll get a picture of what the Lord Jesus was like. When we think about the fact that Jesus was faithful and trustworthy and kind and generous and sacrificial, he was healing and loving and just and peaceful. I mean, you can go on and on. Pick your favorite characteristic of Jesus if you want and think about how in the world the role that you're in, the responsibilities that you have can manifest that characteristic. His faithfulness, his trustworthiness, his integrity, his beauty, his creativity. When we work like Jesus, people see Jesus in us. Somebody said in our teaching team meeting this week that not all employers want to be Christians, right? But all employers want to hire Christians. And when they said it, I thought, I don't know that that's strictly true, right? I I think if we went over here to the circle, I'm getting to know all the guys that work and the ladies that work over at the Circle K because they have really good soda and it's really cheap and I can walk there. Um, If we went over to the manager of the Circle K this morning, we said, hey, do you exclusively want to hire Christians? He would go, definitely not, right? But if we said, do you want to hire people that are integrous, that are peaceful, that are hardworking and industrious? Do you want to hire people that are going to show up on time, that are going to do great work, that are going to be loving and generous? You want to hire those kinds of people? Every employer you ask will say, yeah, that's who I want to hire. You know who they want to hire? They want to hire people like Jesus. The reason why they would say, I don't necessarily want to hire Christians is that most of the time, you and I are not working like Jesus. And so we're giving him a bad rep, right? But the reality is that when you and I start to think about our accounting work, or we start to think about our taxi, or we start to think about our homeschooling, or we start to think about whatever it is we're doing, as a way to paint a picture of Christ, then we have to come to those activities that might otherwise seem mundane and recognize they're not mundane at all. They're all infused with sacred potential. 
that we not only can glorify God ourselves, but we can paint a picture that other people can see. And the third thing I want you to see is that we have the opportunity to bring some, uh, some mitigation or minimizing to the effects of the fall in the lives of the unredeemed. That was a weird, a, kind of a weird sort of theology sentence. But what I mean is this. We live in a broken world. We're surrounded by people who are constantly being let down by others and are constantly being betrayed and lied to. People who are broken and hurting and full of pain and sorrow. And in our work, if we will work the way that Christ works, if we will commit our work to the Lord, then we have an opportunity to minimize some of the effects of the the fall. The pain that people are feeling, we can bring hope. The injustice that we see in the world, we can bring justice, we can bring peace, we can bring love. Now ultimately, they absolutely need to know Christ. But in the short term, we have the opportunity to bring some of these things that they cannot experience in any other sphere. The unregenerate are incapable of manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. So when we bring the fruit of the Spirit and we let other people taste it, it might be the only taste they get. And it might make them hungry for the source of the fruit. Does that make sense? In our work, we do good work so other people will see us and glorify our Father. It might be different than the way you've thought about work. You might have thought, I want to do such good work that people will see me and glorify me. Or I want to do such good work that people will see me and give me a raise. Or I want to do such good work that people will see me and, and they'll give me the promotion I want. Or I'll be able to move along my career ladder. But in that case, all you're thinking about is selfishness. It's one of the, one of the most fun things I got to do when I was in Long Beach was ref soccer, youth soccer. I think I've told some of you that before, but I was a soccer ref over there. Primarily, I got into refing soccer um, because it was good exercise and, uh, and also because it was a great way to meet my neighbors. Right? I, I met all the other soccer refs in that particular region. I knew the coaches. I knew the parents. Some of them screamed the ugliest things at me. I knew lots of the kids, right? Um, but being a soccer ref was a really fun way to engage. and It was great exercise. I haven't, um, <clears throat> I haven't had the opportunity to referee soccer since I moved to Fullerton and that's why I like, put on 20 pounds since I got here. Thanks very much, Evie Free. Uh, but I, uh, one of the things I really loved is that in my refereeing of soccer, I had the opportunity to, to make manifest visibly some of the attributes of Christ. His grace, his justice, his patience, his truth, his ability to turn away harsh words with meekness and kindness. And I was able to put those things on display. Now, it's not like I blew my whistle at the beginning of the match and said, hey, everybody, just so you know, I'm doing a Jesus demonstration today. No, I was just a good soccer ref. And I would have parents that came to me and they would go, man, when we show for the games and we see that you're gonna be our ref, we're so glad. And I go, why? And they're like, because you're fair. I said, well, you know why I'm fair? Jesus was fair. And it provided opportunities for me to glorify God myself, but also to paint a picture of what Jesus is like to people who might not other see him, and then also to allow others to feast on the fruit of the Spirit who might not taste that fruit in any other context. So Proverbs 16.3, which is our core, when it says, commit your work to the Lord, that's important. What does it mean to commit? What does it mean to commit your work? Well, the word commit is actually really, it's only translated commit a couple of times in the Bible. It's a very kind of a weird Hebrew word. Um, I will mispronounce it, so scholars in the room, feel free to send me your angry letters. Uh, but the word is G-A-L-A-L. It's galal, right? There's like three syllables, even though it only looks like two. And the word that's translated there, commit, is only used a couple of places. Most of the time it's used to talking about the rolling away of something onto something else. So like, for instance, when Jacob goes to find a wife and he has to roll away the stone that's on the well. It's this word, galaal, right? 
commit, roll away onto something else, roll away the stone. Right? The idea here is not of just sort of making a pledge or signing a contract. The idea is of taking the responsibility and the burden that you might feel yourself for your work, for your productive action, and rolling it over onto Christ. Rolling it over onto him. It's no wonder that Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, he says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I will free you from all work for the rest of your life. He says, no, 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 give me, your, roll your burden over onto me, and I will place my yoke upon you and it's light. Commit your work to the Lord. It's also important to think about what it says there when it says, your, commit your work to the Lord, right? It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what vocation you're in. It doesn't matter what sphere. I think we make this mistake sometimes as thinking about uh, different jobs as having more sort of sacred potential. You know what I'm saying? Like I would guess that there are probably many of you in the room who think that what I do vocationally is more important than what you do. Because I'm a pastor at a church and I study the Bible and I share the gospel and I, and I do these roles in, in my particular calling. And it, it might rest in your head that what I do is more important than you do. Can I just tell you that's a lie? It's false. And in the places along the way, in the course of church history where pastors have sort of perpetuated that lie, shame on them, right? Because what I do has redemptive potential, absolutely. But so does the work of every school teacher. So does the work of every stay-at-home dad. So does the work of every swimming coach. So does the work of every author. So does, it all has redemptive potential. You see what I'm saying? Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three, verse 22 and following says this. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. What does Colossians 3 say? Whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord. What that does is it puts each and every one of us created in the image of God on a level playing field. You and I have to recognize the value, the significance, and the redemptive potential of every task and every moment. There is no hierarchy of roles, talents, jobs, skills, or tasks. It all can glorify God, it all can paint a picture of Christ, and it all can mitigate or minimize some of the effects of the fall in the world in which we live. Every role, every responsibility is equal in its potential. We, we wanna make this sacred secular divide, don't we? We wanna go, well, these jobs are sacred and these jobs are secular. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't paint a sacred secular divide. There is no line. Right? Some people go, well, I can't wait to finish my job as an architect, and then when I retire, I'm finally going to do the work of the Lord. No, listen, that work in architecture is the work of the Lord. Right? Don't wait until later. Glorify God in it now. We have to remove that, that, that line. That's what committing our way to the Lord. Do everything with joy and excellence. I took, a, I took a group of college students. I actually had the opportunity to go to the last four Billy Graham crusades, right, before he retired. And I took a group of about 60 college students to each one of those. We rode on a bus all the way across the country in many cases. And uh, 
When we got to the Billy Graham crusade, I told these students I was with, hey, we're gonna serve, we're gonna work the Billy Graham crusade. And their minds immediately went to the idea that we were gonna be doing you know, counseling, praying with people who wanted to accept Jesus, or maybe in the prayer room, being able to pray with people who had needs, or that, you know, they, they weren't really sure. Maybe we're gonna sing in the choir. There's all these kind of what we view as sacred responsibilities. And we show up at the Billy Graham crusade, and I tell my students, okay, get out of the bus, here we go. What we're doing for the next five days is we're pushing wheelchairs, we're doing handicap access. We're gonna help people get from the parking lot into the stadium, and I don't know if you've ever pushed a wheelchair from the parking lot at Dallas Stadium onto the field in Dallas Stadium, but you basically have to work your way up a spiral ramp and then across and down a spiral ramp and out onto the field. It's hard work, really hard work. And I had college students who were really frustrated. Like, why couldn't we have been counselors? Why couldn't we have been prayer partners? Why couldn't we have been in these other important roles? Why are we just pushing people from the parking lot into the stadium? And I was able to stop them and go, it's your opinion, is it, that the work of a prayer partner or the work of a, a counselor leading somebody to Christ is more important than the work of somebody who pushes a wheelchair, who enables a person who can't walk on their own power to get from the lot onto the field so they can hear the message of the gospel? These jobs are the same. These jobs glorify God. These jobs paint a picture of what Jesus is like. I guarantee if Jesus was volunteering at the Billy Graham crusade, that's the job he'd choose. Right? And I actually had students that would like hide their wheelchairs and sneak off to go and do counseling, right? And I'd have to, in my loving and gentle way, go and corral them, right? Don't laugh. I'd corral them back over and go, this is what we're doing. This is sacred work. It's all sacred work. And it's important that we not be idle. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse 10 says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. It's not that different from what it says in Proverbs 24, verse 30. This is a famous passage, Proverb. It says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns, the ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. What's the proverb saying? What's 2 Thessalonians saying? It's saying, don't just take for granted that you've been given the opportunity to do good work as unto the Lord. Don't just fold your hands and rest and wait because poverty will come on you. That isn't just a proverb that's talking about putting money in your bank account, by the way. It's talking about the spiritual opportunity we have to bring glory to God with every thought, word, deed, and attitude. And if we just fold our hands and we just twiddle our thumbs and we just wait for it to happen sort of by osmosis, it will never happen. That's why Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your way or your work unto the Lord. Roll it over onto Christ. And then it says, your plans will be established. I feel like most of the time uh, we get this flipped, don't we? Most of the time we sort of sit going, God, I want you to tell me what to do. Do you want me to go to this college or that college? Or this? Do you want me to apply at this job or this job? God, do you want me to marry this person or that person? We kind of wait and we hope that God will establish our thoughts and then we'll do some work. That isn't what Proverbs 16.3 says. Proverbs 16 has the order reversed. It says you're already working. You're already, you're already producing actively in your life. Commit what you're doing. Commit what you're doing. Roll that over onto Christ and he'll clear up your thinking. 
Some verses actually translate that establish your plans as establish your thoughts, right? And that word establish, it's an architectural word. It doesn't, it doesn't, by the way, if you have an NIV translation this morning, I don't have a lot of complaints about the NIV translation, but Proverbs 16.3 is one of them. Proverbs 16.3 says something like, um, commit your work to the Lord and he will make your plan succeed. Can I just say that that's the worst translation I've ever heard for this verse? It does not say that he will make your plan succeed. That's not the idea. The idea of him establishing your thoughts, your plans, your purposes is a, is a foundational word. It means he will stabilize your thinking. That your thinking will be grounded and rooted in Christ and his purposes. That word establishes the idea of being able to erect a structure that will withstand the forces applied to it. It's the idea of integrity, right? Structural integrity in your thinking and in your purposes and your plans. You want to have your head on straight? Commit your stuff, commit your work to the Lord. Roll your work over onto the Lord, and He will stabilize or found, establish your plans. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, one of my favorite verses. It's just in Paul's preamble. He says, uh, I always remember my God and Father when I'm praying about you. And this is what he says to the church at Thessalonica. He says, I always remember your work produced by faith and your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope. And most of the time you just read over the first couple of verses of 1 Thessalonians. It kind of feels just like it's greeting, which is what it is. But listen to the profound thing he says about the church at Thessalonica. He says, I remember your work and your labor and your endurance, but that isn't all he says. He talks about the fuel of those things. Yeah, I remember your work and your labor and your your endurance, but when I think of them, I remember that it's not just work, it's work produced by faith, and it's labor prompted by love, and it's endurance inspired by hope. What's the fuel for our work? Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love produces work and labor and endurance. Each and every one of us have the ability to roll our doing, our external work, onto Christ so that our purposes or our plans, the internal, will become stable. Listen, you you might not get to choose your work, right? You might not be in a job you like. You might not be able to get the job that you want. The job you had that you like might be falling apart. I don't know where you sit vocationally. None of us necessarily get get to choose the job we want all the time, but each and every one of us get to choose how we will do it and what the outcome will be. Each and every one of us, no matter what field you're in, get to choose how you will do it and what the outcome will be. Will you do it as unto the Lord? Will you do it in the way he would do it? And will you do it for the sake of his glory? You choose that. You might not have chosen your post. You might not have chosen to be a stay-at-home mom. You might not have chosen to be a stay-at-home dad. You might not have chosen to be a school teacher or a correctional officer or a judge or whatever. Listen, you might not have chosen the job, but you get to choose how you do it and what comes out of it. The glory of God the the picture of Christ and the mitigation of the pain and suffering, the sorrow of living in a broken world. You and I can bring that to whatever vocation we're in. Productive action work as we work like God works. I want to finish this morning with sort of an active response. And uh, a couple of of months ago, I, I had these stamps made and uh, you can't see it, but the stamp says sacred. I had several of these made, and I gave them to some of the leadership here at the church, and I said, you know, one of the, one of the most important things we do as pastoral staff at our church is putting the sacred stamp on the lives of every moment of every person that we serve in the church. It doesn't matter who we meet or what they do for a living or what they want to do for a living. We have the opportunity to look into their eye and say, what you do is sacred and what you do is sacred and what you do is sacred. And so I I had them all bring their stamps this morning. We got six of these sacred stamps down here. 
And as we close this morning, I want you to think about what you do. I, I thought at first maybe we'd get like a business card and you could stamp your business card or you could write it on a little note like this is what I do. I'm a teacher or I'm a police officer or whatever. But it's not just your job. It's not just your vocational job that you do for a paycheck. It's everything. You know, Ecclesiastes 9 says, um, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And so I thought it's not just about putting the sacred stamp on your job. It's actually about putting the sacred stamp on your hand. So we've got these tables up here in the front. And in response and the time we have left, I'm just going to invite you to come. Come up to the front and stamp the stamp in the little pad thing here. And just stamp your hand with it, you know. Actually, don't stamp your hand with it. I want to ask you to go one step further. I'm going to ask you to take the stamp and stamp the hand of the person behind you that we're looking into each other's eyes and recognizing the sacredness of one another. We'll take the time. There are three stamps on each table, but I invite you to come forward. If you love it so much, after church, you can go over to the tattoo shop. We've arranged a discount over there. Uh, You just get that thing secured. No, but let's take the time to really acknowledge the fact that what we do matters to God. So I'm gonna invite you to come, come up to the tables and stamp the person behind you and we'll pass that on, okay?